Hello, and welcome to the ATX Rx podcast, the podcast that takes complex issues involving medication use in the ICU and other parts of the healthcare community and breaks it down into practical and usable information for the bedside. This podcast is presented to you by the American Thoracic Society Clinical Pharmacist Working Group. The working group was established in 2019 and is currently co-chaired by Drs. Tapali Dixit and Mark Melsker. My name is Dr. Marilyn Bullock. I'm an Associate Clinical Professor of Pharmacy Practice and the Director of Strategic Operations at the Auburn University Harrison College of Pharmacy, and I will be moderating today's podcast. Our podcast is meant to discuss all things related to medication, pharmacy, and more from the pharmacist's perspective. Our podcast is for educational purposes only. We will cover material that represents the approach, view, or opinion of our speakers that may be helpful to others, but do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of ATS. In today's episode, we will look forward into the future of one of the most common pulmonary diseases. We are joined by a pharmacist who is renowned for his work, research, and dedication to the field of asthma. Leslie Hindelis, PharmD, is a professor emeritus in the College of Pharmacy and courtesy professor of pediatrics pulmonary in the College of Medicine at the University of Florida. He earned his PharmD degree at the University of Southern California in 1969. His research has focused on methods of determining bioequivalence of generic inhalers, delivery of inhaled drugs to young children, and improvement of adherence to asthma medications. He previously served on the FDA's Pulmonary Allergy Drugs Advisory Committee and the Coordinating Committee of NIH Asthma Education Program, as well as the CDC's expert on asthma guidelines for emergency medical services. He was the co-chair for the Florida Asthma Coalition for 2020. 12 to 2014, and for several decades, he provided advice on the use of drugs for patients with difficult-to-manage asthma and taught pharmacy students, pediatric residents, and pulmonary fellows about the use of medications in the pediatric pulmonary clinic at the university. Currently, he volunteers in a pediatric severe asthma clinic once a month and consults with industry to help make generic inhalers available. Welcome. Your bio is so impressive. It's like a what I want to be when I grow up kind of goal <laughs> aspiration. How did you get so involved with such a very niche part of medicine? So one day back in the early 70s, when I was at, on the faculty of the University of Iowa, I was making rounds with an internal medicine group. And there were three patients admitted the night before with acute asthma that were put on theophylin or aminophylin, uh, which was one of the standard drugs at the time. And there were a few of them that were vomiting. And it was curious to me. I always thought that that the uh, nausea and vomiting related to aminophylin was, was a result of irritation to the GI tract. And I looked into it and found that there was a, a pulmonologist uh, in Minnesota at the VA in uh, Minneapolis that uh, had published a paper uh, with measurement of theophylline blood levels, uh, suggesting that there was a range of 
blood levels uh, that were was related to adverse effects and and blood levels that uh, were not effective. And they they proposed a therapeutic range. And uh, I I went to one of the pharmaceutics professors in the College of Pharmacy and asked uh, uh, them to teach me how to do this assay for theophylline. And I set up a theophylline uh, assay for patients uh, in the internal medicine department, and in particular uh, in the uh, medical intensive care unit. And I began measuring blood levels and collaborating with the a critical care pulmonologist at the time, and and that's that's how I got in. That's that was my beginning into into asthma, and of course it expanded um, uh, into uh, ambulatory care and and being involved in the care of patients in the uh, first in the pediatric uh, uh, allergy clinic at the University of Iowa, uh, and then uh, subsequently when I moved to the University of Florida, I continued uh, in that role. That's incredible. You know, for all every pharmacy student who's ever had to learn theophylline pharmacokinetics in class, I guess they can thank you for that. But that's a big deal. Um, and certainly led to really a lot of innovations in this field. Now you've had a long storied career. I mean, it's just remarkable everything that you've been able to be part of and to do, but let's focus maybe just on the last five years. What do you think has been the biggest change to asthma treatment that you've seen in those past five years? Uh, unquestionably, it's the availability of biologics that target specific cytokines uh, in patients with more severe asthma uh, that has just made a dramatic change in the, in the need for repeated courses of oral steroids and reducing ED visits and hospitalizations. Uh, I think it is the biggest change, the bi biggest uh, game changer since uh, the uh, involvement of uh, inhaled corticosteroids in treating asthma. That's interesting because, you know, we see a lot of patients who are getting on these biologics, but many, most of our patients are still going to have to have rescue inhalers, I would assume. Um, and most of us have only ever connected albuterol as when they think of a rescue inhaler, and I'll admit that's that's kind of how I grew up and how I was taught and really what I've seen in practice, it's just been that way for decades. But, you know, recently there was this albuterol-budesonide combination that was approved as a rescue inhaler, at least in adults. You know, people, as you mentioned, have been using these you know, steroids for years and um, for the past several years, they've been using a low-dose steroid with formiterol, um for exacerbations. Do you envision that we will move away from albuterol monotherapy for exacerbations, or is it likely that you know, there'll be certain patients that require combination rescue therapy, and for others, monotherapy will be sufficient? So the short answer is it would be a big mistake to to follow the GINA guidelines and abandon the use of albuterol by itself, because there are many patients that, that uh, especially uh, patients with milder disease, mild persistent asthma, or uh, even intermittent asthma, where they only have asthma when they're exposed to an allergen, or if they get a viral respiratory tract infection, uh, or uh, perhaps uh, with exercise. Those patients, uh, 
it's really unlikely that they're going to need a combination of a uh, inhaled corticosteroid and a rapid onset of beta agonist uh, for for quick relief. I, I think the uh, I, I think it's a rush to judgment, and I I think some of it is uh, is fueled by studies that were uh, funded by the uh, AstraZeneca, who in Europe and other countries outside the United States have successfully promoted Symbicort, which is a mixture of budesonide and uh, hormoterol, which is a long-acting beta agonist, but unlike Cerevent, is rapidly is a rapid onset. So it it works as fast as albuterol lasts longer, uh, and uh, is very is has been popular uh, outside the United States for for quick relief. And as I mentioned in, in um, the GINA, which is the global initiative for asthma, uh, they have recommended against using albuterol uh, by itself uh, in, in all of these situations. And they recommend uh, an inhaled corticosteroid with formoterol. Uh, th there are really three types of uh, clinical situations uh, where where the use of this combination uh, is being recommended by the by first the global initiative and part of that uh, by our own NIH uh, uh, asthma guidelines, which were updated in uh, 2020. Uh, the the first uh, and and perhaps the most logical is in patients that have moderate to severe asthma and are requiring uh, an inhaled corticosteroid and a long-acting beta agonist combination product as maintenance, which is how they're approved in the United States. Uh, and there, there are two, in the U.S., there are two such products uh, that, that have formoterol in it. Uh, one is uh, Symbicort, and the other one is Dulera, and they, they have a different uh, inhaled corticosteroid. But th those, those products... Uh, have been uh, when they're being used as a maintenance therapy. Uh, the current practice has been to to give just albuterol when those patients have an exacerbation. And what the uh, GINA guidelines and even the NIH guidelines are now recommending is the for these patients is to use the same inhaler that's being used for maintenance therapy for quick relief. And the, the goal there is to get uh, extra inhaled steroid into the airways along with the bronchodilator early on. Uh, and there is evidence that uh, the frequency of exacerbations, uh, especially severe exacerbations, is reduced more with that process than using albuterol as the rescue and uh, the combination product is the maintenance. The problem is uh, the studies, and there were 15 that were reviewed by the NIH uh, in a meta-analysis, uh, 14 of those 15 involved uh, budesonide and formoterol in a dry powder inhaler, which delivers twice as much drug to the airways as as the MDI that's available in the United States. The dry powder inhaler is not available in the United States, only the uh, MDI. And so for one thing, uh, we don't know if 
if that combination product actually works as well as what was published because uh, it de delivers less drugs. That's one issue. Uh, and the second issue is, is that none of the studies and most all of these were funded by the manufacturer AstraZeneca of the uh, Symbicort product. Um, none of those studies actually measured uh, uh, halter monitoring. So uh, when you increase the dose of formoterol, uh, you actually get a widening of the uh, QT interval and the and there is an increased risk of torsades, which can sometimes be fatal. So uh, it's not it's not clear whether it's uh, whether the the HFA products are as effective or as safe uh, as you just using albuterol. And for that reason, FDA refused to approve Symbicort in the United States uh, for as needed uh, quick relief. Uh, so as a consequence, AstraZeneca substituted the from of albuterol for formoterol, and the product is a combination of budesonide and albuterol called Air Supra, and they did get that approved uh, in the United States. And so, uh, and I think it was easier for them to do that because there was all this history of safety with albuterol, and uh, uh, they were able to convince the FDA that that the using uh, an inhaled steroid along with the albuterol was uh, more effective than than uh, quick relief with just albuterol alone. But uh, when you actually look at that study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year, it was, it was the Mandela study. Uh, and in the um, appendix, they they broke it down into age groups. And what is very clear is that in in the pediatric age group and Patients over 65 years of age, the combination combining the budesonide with the albuterol for quick relief did not provide greater benefit than just albuterol alone. So the the really the, we're talking about the age group between 18 and 64 as as the uh, as where it is likely to be uh, more effective. I want to break that down just a little bit more because you know where you spent most of your career focusing in pediatrics at most of my time um is spent on the other end of the age spectrum in geriatrics since you know as you get older you you certainly have more difficult time uh, with lung compliance and so getting that medicine in just from you know using the inhaler becomes really difficult so you said that the best benefit was in, you know, younger adults, you know, eight, 18 to 64, um, where kids in geriatrics, it's not. So should we really sort of restrict these products to just purely your adults? Or do you think that there are studies in the pipeline that might expand their use? We just don't know if they're effective in these other groups and maybe more data will tell us that. Well, I, th I think you have to look at uh, the pa the patient population that, that are being enrolled in these studies. They select out people who allegedly are taking uh, maintenance inhaled steroid or combination inhaled steroid and LABA 
maintenance and and uh, not and still don't have well controlled asthma. Uh, but but the question is 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 uh, is, is their asthma poorly controlled because they're either not using their inhaler optimally, which is a big problem, uh, and, or is it because uh, they're not adherent? And if you if you look at the data in the literature, it's it's very clear that probably the biggest reason for poorly controlled asthma uh, in any population is adherence or or poor poor. Uh, technique because the, the the optimal amount of medicine is not getting into the airways so uh and it's hard you know for to, to conduct studies where you you can guarantee that the patients have good technique and with good technique still are uh, poorly controlled so uh what i have recommended to clinicians uh, if they have a patient who is for which they have prescribed maintenance medicine either an inhaled steroid by itself or a combination of an inhaled steroid and a LABA, long-acting beta agonist such as formoterol, if or even Cerevent, which is uh, in the Advair product. Um, if they are not well controlled, the first thing one needs to do is to check their inhaler technique. And you'd be really shocked to find out when you give a placebo inhaler in the clinic and say, show me how you use it, uh, you you really uh, find out that a lot of patients um, squirt it in their mouth and don't inhale, or they they inhale and then squirt it. I mean, there's a lot of problems with that. The, the patients have not been adequately taught, or if they were taught, they're not following uh, the advice. Uh, and then um, the the easiest thing to do is is to find out how often they're refilling their maintenance medication. Uh, Initially, we did, we did do a study where we compared uh, the uh, we we actually called the patient's pharmacy and we compared the information that the pharmacist gave us on how often they were being refilled with Medicaid uh, payment records. So, and if if the uh, if the inhaler is not being picked up from the pharmacy, uh, there isn't a charge. For a month or many months, uh, and one can assume if they're if, if they're not picking up the medicine, they can't be possibly taking it. And so uh, that was initially what we did in our clinic was uh, routinely call pay uh, the pharmacy uh, in these situations. But that is a very time-consuming thing, especially since COVID and pharmacists involved with giving vaccinations and, and doing testing and everything, it's really hard to even get a hold of a pharmacist uh, in, uh, in most of the, most of the time. Uh, and so uh, we then looked at our electronic medical record, uh, the Epic, which does now have an option where it can give, give you the, uh, number of uh, refills based upon what the insurance, the third party payer paid uh, or what the pharmacy dispensed. And uh, we, we found that that uh, uh, commonly patients who are not well controlled on, on what appears to be appropriate maintenance medication are not filling their medication regularly. And so we try and in, in our clinic, we try and deal with that problem see if we can, if it's a matter of they can't afford it. Uh, you know, the uh, the inhalers 
especially the combination products, uh, the, the list price is as much as $400 for a month's supply. And most people can't, many people can't afford that. Uh, and uh, even people who have insurance, often the copay could be uh, too high. They can't afford the copay. So trying to find out what is the cause of them not taking their medicine uh, is an important uh, source of uh, a way a way of uh, identifying what what's causing the uh, asthma to be poorly controlled and and to deal with those first before considering uh, whether to to uh, prescribe either uh, what's called SMART, that uh, stands for a single inhaler for both maintenance and reliever therapy. Uh, and that's what uh, Symbicort is used for and approved by many countries outside the United States. Uh, and that's the patients are supposed to take the medication twice a day, and then they use the same inhaler for quick relief. That's called SMART. Uh, and uh, uh, that that mode of therapy um, most likely would be uh, beneficial in patients who are not taking their uh, maintenance medicine on a regular basis. Uh, it hasn't been well studied uh, in relation to adherence, uh, but it, it uh, from my view, it it seems reasonable. If you have tried everything and you can't get the patient to improve their adherence, that 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 might be uh, one place where it makes sense. In other in other cases, especially patients who have uh, milder disease, uh, there's no data that the combination product used as quick relief actually provides uh, more benefit than the albuterol uh, alone. And that, and that's looking at the data with with uh, the combination of budesonide and formoterol. Now, this new product, uh, this Air Supra, uh, could potentially be less effective. That there's, you know, it's, there hasn't been a, a head-to-head uh, uh, comparison. But it, when you look at the data, even in the population in which it is uh, uh, was effective. Uh, it it didn't seem to be as effective as uh, uh, as it as it could be, and clearly is much less effective than uh, prescribing a biologic for those more severe patients. That sort of brings up an interesting conundrum because, you know, as pharmacists, we're no strangers to off-label use. We use it all the time, but now we're in this you know, this sort of window where our guidelines are telling us to use something like promoterol budesonide that's not FDA approved, but now we have this FDA approved drug um, that's on the market. And so insurance companies, a lot of times, as you mentioned, um, really dictate what we can and can't use in a lot of our patients. And they, they tend to err in the side of, you know, drugs that are approved. Um, which may or may not be as effective because we just, as you mentioned, we just don't know. It hasn't been studied head to head. So where do you think we'll move, you know, into the future between these two PRN products? You know, do you think it'll ultimately um, will end up still, you know, still using the promoterol budesonide like the guidelines are sort of recommending? Or do you think there will be, for whatever reason, whether it be 
you know, study data or insurance purposes do you think will move more to the albuterol budesonide um, practice? So I think the biggest obstacle to using the combination uh, budesonide bromoterol, which which uh, has been shown in randomized controlled trials to, to provide benefit under certain circumstances, the biggest obstacle is FDA approval. And uh, there is actually stark warnings uh, that Simbicort, for example, should not be used for PRN. The, it's in the patient instruction sheets that come with the with the prescription, and it's in the package insert. And we've had uh, when we have have prescribed it, uh, BID and PRN, we've had pharmacists call up and say it's not approved, uh, and nearly. Uh, refuse to to fill it. Uh, that's one thing. Second thing is is, is uh, especially if the patient, if you don't have a, a a good rapport with the patient, maybe it's a new patient, and you haven't had a chance to establish a good rapport. Uh, they they read that they're they're not supposed to do that, and here you are prescribing it. So there's a contradiction there, uh, and patients are are reluctant to try it. So we we have actually prescribed it. And then when a return visit find out that they they weren't they were not following it they were still using the albuterol uh so so th so those are two issues and and then the 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 perhaps even bigger issue is is that third-party payers use that as an excuse uh for not for not paying for it uh and we've had that rejected and uh, if you go through the appeals process and you provide data from the nih guidelines you may get get approval if if the uh, insurer is is the insurance company is convinced that that the patients had an adequate trial with other you know albuterol and and maintenance medicine and still not well controlled and it's costing them money for the patients to go to the emergency room they they might approve off-label use of uh, Simbicort or Dulera uh, but it, it's a very time-consuming process both for the patient the pharmacist and the physician uh and there there's no reimbursement to the physician for the time that their office staff have to spend uh getting these drugs approved so i think that that's a big obstacle um and my guess is is that the uh, air supra will not be uh adapted readily because it'll probably be a lot more expensive than albuterol i was looking uh, uh on good rx uh, uh which is a uh, a service uh, a, a website that uh, uh, lists what the what the uh, price of medication is at local pharmacies. You put in your zip code, and they uh, uh, they have coupons, and and with it with one of their coupons, it lowers the price if you have to pay out of pocket. And I I found uh, there were several pharmacies in our neighborhood here in Gainesville, Florida, that you could get a generic. FDA approved bioequivalent albuterol MDI inhaler uh, for uh, 14 between 14 and $30. Uh, and there were more than one that was less than $20. Uh, so, so we're talking about uh, a cost issue as well. And I, I, I mean, I can't believe that AstraZeneca wouldn't charge a, a premium price for their Air Super when they've gone through uh, all of uh, the funding of studies and getting getting approval for the product. Yeah, I know 
pricing with albuterol has been an issue as long as I've been a, a pharmacist. I remember when it was reformulated and it went from being dirt cheap to all of a sudden being brand name again. And the cost was almost prohibitive for many of our patients. And it sounds like that that's a, a big concern here as well. Well, even even the, uh, you know, Simbicord, for example, or Dulera, uh, even for patients with with uh, prescription benefits, sometimes the, the copay can be $60. Uh, you know, so, so those are expensive, to, uh, even in patients who have uh, who have uh, a prescription benefit, but I think are prohibitive for a lot of patients that 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 don't have uh, that coverage or they haven't met their deductible, which uh, for even even for the uh, Obamacare patients can be as high. They may have a, a deductible of seven thousand or eight thousand dollars. They have to meet first before the prescription benefit uh, kicks in. I want to bring it back to the albuterol, budesonide, this new inhaler. One of the things I remember very early on learning in pharmacy school was to counsel patients not to take their albuterol every day um, because of the risk of developing that tolerance. I mean, it was just drummed into us that if they were taking their albuterol every day, they needed to, to let their prescriber know because they needed to you know, adjust their maintenance therapy. And so now we have this product and it is just for, you know, as needed, but it can also be used for the prevention of asthma. Are we still concerned about albuterol eventually not working or not being effective as a rescue therapy? Or have we learned enough new information to suggest that maybe we don't need to be as concerned with the regular uses of albuterol as we have been in the past? Good question. I can tell you're, you're, you're having been around as long as you have, and you have a memory of of that problem being uh, studied a lot and published a lot uh, on tachyphylaxis. If you go back and look at that literature, though, it, it, it they were in patients who were not getting maintenance therapy with inhaled corticosteroids, which I think uh, uh, negates that that problem largely. There's one situation that I know of that that I've run across that's not not uncommon. And it's in patients who only have isolated exercise-induced bronchospasm. Uh, that means that that if they're exercising vigorously, they, they they get bronchospasm. But if they're not exercising vigorously, they don't have any symptoms, no nocturnal symptoms. They don't have persistent asthma. And in those patients, uh, if they use uh, episodically uh, uh, two puffs of albuterol before running, for example, jogging, uh, it, it will completely protect them from having uh, exercise-induced bronchospasm. But if you did that every day, then they actually would lose their bronchoprotective effect because it's, it's, it, it is just the uh, beta agnus alone and then the receptors uh, in the airways, the beta two receptors downregulate, and um, uh, uh, in the absence of an inhaled steroid, they they uh, uh, they lose their bronchoprotective effect. In uh, and and where it's a real problem is in patients like adolescents who or play football, or, you know, or in sports. 
because they actually practice every day. And in in those patients, uh, we have prescribed inhaled corticosteroids as maintenance therapy, even though the only time they have asthma is when they exercise, but they exercise every day. Uh, and the inhaled corticosteroid decreases the number of mast cells in the airways. And so there's a decrease in the release of mediators and it, it has a bronchoprotective effect against exercise-induced bronchospasm. And in fact, for many patients uh, who vigorously exercise, uh, an inhaled steroid taken regularly, uh, like twice a day, every day, uh, will prevent them from having symptoms. And they won't even need to use albuterol before jogging uh, in those patients. And there, there have been a number of double-blind studies uh, showing that even at low doses of inhaled steroid twice a day, it, it, it protects against uh, uh, exercise and just bronchospasm. So, so the, the bottom line is, is what you brought up is, is probably only relevant in people who are not uh, on maintenance inhaled corticosteroids. That's an interesting shift and one I don't know that is being done everywhere in the country, but it certainly sounds like maybe it needs to be. Um, because the, the pharmacology and the pathophysiology certainly makes sense. Another new thing that we're seeing um, is the use of llamas in asthma. You know, historically, llamas have been more associated with COPD. Um, but as I mentioned before, we're starting to see it more with asthma. Is this a, a paradigm shift that we should expect completely? You know, what benefit do llamas offer in asthma? So, so the biggest uh, advantage that they offer is uh, for patients who don't tolerate LABAs, the long-acting beta agonists, that if, they're, uh, if they have asthma and uh, it's poorly controlled on inhaled steroid alone, and the patient has got good technique and good adherence, uh, adding a, a LABA uh, really provides substantial additional benefit. But if they have a cardiac rhythm problem, for example, they may 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 not be able to tolerate a LABA, uh, even though they're they're cardioselective, they still have uh, effects on on uh, rhythm, and so uh, a LAMA, which uh, has much much less systemic bioavailability from the inhaled route compared to a beta agonist. A llama will provide uh, an additive benefit almost as good as adding Cerevent to inhaled steroid, adding a llama to an inhaled steroid. That combination um, is is uh, an advantage for the patient who doesn't tolerate the the llama. Now there is a product on the market, Trilogy, which uh, is a combination of an inhaled steroid a long-acting beta agonist and a llama, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist. Uh, that combination was approved, uh, although it was used in, in uh, COPD first, it was recently approved in asthma patients and uh, even recommended in the, in the NIH guidelines of 2020. But again, I'll, I'll just reiterate that if the patient isn't using good technique or isn't adherent, they may have, that is a, 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 a frequent cause of poorly controlled asthma. And if you don't address those, those factors, adding in a third drug 
uh, is not likely to have much benefit. Now, in the double-blind randomized controlled trials, the adding in the llama to the other two agents uh, does provide a modest improvement in, in uh, lung function, but doesn't decrease the need for steroids or ED visits or hospitalizations. So in my view, and I think asthma specialists uh, uh, are are in agreement. Uh, the, the data shows that those patients who who are not uh, well controlled on a combination product uh, are best served by put uh, prescribing a uh, a biologic. And uh, there are there are three pharmacologic categories of biologics. And if you pick the right biologic uh, for that patient, you can really dramatically uh, control their asthma, even if they're not adherent to their inhaled steroid. Um, so, so I think that's the better choice than, than uh, doing a drug product such as Trilogy that has three agents in it. But again, if, it's, if the problem is not tolerating the LABA, uh, replacing the, uh, the LABA with an, a LAMA, the long-acting muscarinic, like teotropium or spireva, uh, the that would be a, an alternative. It, the disadvantage is there is no uh, inhaled steroid llama combination available in the United States. There is outside the United States, so you patient with that kind of patient would have to use two inhalers for maintenance. And you just mentioned biologics and maybe their role in asthma, and there's been a lot of research in this area and approvals beyond the traditional inhaler approach in the last couple of years. One of those has been a monoclonal antibody called Tispire, which was approved at the end of 2021. We know that there's a lot of other monoclonal antibodies in development. They seem to be developed um, for something called T2 asthma. So first of all, what is T2 asthma and how broadly do you think these new drugs will be used in the future? I mean, is this something that's a very niche focus of drug development or is it a chance that they'll become part of routine care? So, so TH, TH2 asthma is, an, is a, a chronic uh, asthma that is dominated by the role of eosinophils and the uh, cytokine and by, and the products that are released by the eosinophils. Uh, and in those patients, uh, typically they have a, a peripheral um, eosinophil count that's elevated. Uh, and uh, there are, well, let, let me say that, that there are three categories of biologics. Uh, the original one, uh, Zolaire or omalizumab, uh, is an anti-IgE monoclonal antibody, but not all patients, and especially adults, have, uh, have uh, an elevated IgE or allergic component. So uh, they develop drugs that are anti-IL-5, uh, which is a, a cytokine released by by the eosinophils, and uh, some variation of its mechanism. Uh, drugs like uh, Vicenra and uh, Nucala that you see advertised on television uh, block that um, IL-5 receptor or circulating IL-5. And then the third category are, 
is a is a test spire which blocks a the, the release of a uh, a cytokine from the epithelial airway epithelial so it works higher up and now the, the the difference between choosing between these three is uh first of all how big is the allergic component uh, the second is how big is the eosinophilic component and then if you have a patient with severe asthma and they don't have an elevated IgE or an elevated peripheral eosinophil count, they may still respond to this Tespire. So the, the role of Tespire is really in patients who, who uh, don't qualify for the other biologics. Uh, and, and one of the, one of the biologics, um, benrilizumab, which is Facenera, has the advantage of after the first three monthly doses, you can spread it out to, to every two months. So it's, it's much more convenient uh, than uh, a drug like Dupixent, which is required every two weeks, or uh, Facenra uh, uh, every, excuse me, uh, Nucala, which would be, be monthly. So, so uh, in the patient who has severe asthma and is not well controlled with maintenance therapy, um, and even SMART, you could try SMART in those kind of patients, but as a first step, but most likely you're not going to get a major change in their asthma control until you add a, a biologic, but you need to uh, pick that biologic based upon what evidence there is of what the pathophysiology is going on in the airways of that patient. When you were talking about these biologics, you mentioned a few um parts of the pathophysiology. And I know that there's been a lot of discussion about biomarkers and the ways that we can use them um, to help us identify and, and treat and manage different diseases, including asthma. Are there any of these biomarkers that you think that we're going to be used uh, a lot in the future for asthma? Yeah, well, certainly uh, uh, measuring peripheral eosinophilia is a very uh readily available inexpensive biomarker for the biologics uh, th that affect eosinophils. Uh, what we are currently using in our clinic, uh, in the severe asthma clinic, is an exhaled nitric oxide, which is a readily available, uh, it's, it's actually a machine that's done in the clinic by the respiratory therapist. And it's, uh, it, that machine is, is used in uh, Mini allergist office and in uh, uh, pulmonary uh, ambulatory care clinics where where they're they're focusing on asthma, uh, it it is very good at um, predicting a patient's response to inhaled steroid or even uh, to some of the biologics. So, for example, and there's good data for dupixent, which is dupilamide, uh, which which uh, uh, works on a different cytokine uh, on IL-4 um, uh, and IL-13, uh, that IL is interleukin-4 and 13. Uh, dupilamide, uh, 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 or rather exhaled nitric oxide baseline, very accurately predicts response to dupilamide. And the higher the, the exhaled nitric oxide level uh, before starting uh, dupilamide, the um, the more li likely the dupilamide will will be effective. So so that's a 
readily available. It it um, our hospital charges about a hundred dollars for the test. Uh, it it actually costs about twenty dollars to run. So and that can be done in in uh, uh, in physicians' offices where they see enough asthma patients to justify it. And it uh, uh, you know to me that that uh, is is an adjunctive to spirometry and and a good history. Uh, and it, it it adds an an additional uh, piece of information that, uh, for example, if you if you have a patient that has a, a low exhaled nitric oxide but poorly controlled asthma, uh, increasing the steroid dose, for example, to high dose is not likely to be benefit beneficial, uh, and one needs to think about other other options in in that in that kind of patient. It's so exciting to me to think that we're moving towards a future where we're going to maybe be able to know what people are going to respond to before we even start them on a medication. I think that that is that type of individualized, personalized medicine that we were all taught that would occur in the future of pharmacy and therapeutics. We just haven't completely got there yet to sit. So they hear that that's being used and is probably on the forefront of being more integral in our management, even of of asthma, if not other disease states, I think to me is very exciting. Um, so thank you for letting us know about that. You know, we're almost at the end of our time here today. And I well, just to wrap up, I want to ask you, since you, you know, this is, your area of expertise, and I don't think anybody could argue that you are probably one of the country's, you know, just most prominent pharmacists in this field. What is something that's in the pipeline that you're excited about? Something that you feel um, could be a complete game changer for the disease, even if it's not here yet, you know, even if it's, you know, just in the early stages of development and we may not see it for 10 years. So I I don't see anything in the pipeline that really excites me because I think the biggest game changer would be figuring out how to change adherence to the medications we already have. And uh, I, 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 I have seen a little data on electronic uh, inhalers, uh, the digihaler, for example, that uh, records the date and time of, of the uh, um, uh, of each dose and will uh, sound an alarm on your phone when it's time to take a, take a, a maintenance medication and and the information that's gathered can be downloaded uh, at, at a, a clinic appointment with the doctor or it can be uh, transmitted by email. Uh, the the it, this particular device and there's several that are being experimented with. Uh, also can measure if you're inhaling it, inspiratory flow is measured uh, in it. So so that is a measure of using good technique. It, it can tell if the technique is good uh, and if you're adherent. And uh, so, so it has that capability, but whether it changes behavior is is what what we don't know the answer to yet. Uh, but but that that is an area that I think uh, uh, where uh, engineering and, and medical care have merged 
uh, that has some potential quick uh, because again to me the the two biggest causes of poorly controlled asthma are uh, inadequate inhaler technique and uh, inadequate ad adherence. It really just reinforces wisdom that we've said for a hundred years or more that you've got to talk to your patients and you've got to counsel them and don't assume that they understood what we told them the first time, right? Right. And, and in fact, that's, that's a good point you bring up because uh, in our clinic, uh, we we pharmacy students uh, under my supervision and uh, uh, for years uh, been part of the the healthcare team and gone in there and given the patients instruction on how to use the devices and when to take their medicine and uh, we we make sure that uh, we prescribe. Uh, assist devices like an arrow chamber with mask for patients who who uh, can't hold their breath, that type of thing. Uh, and then they come back for a return appointment and they're using it differently than what we taught them to do. <laughs> so so uh, it, 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 we actually check inhaler technique in all of our severe patients at every visit. And uh, it, and we also go over the the uh, asthma plan that the written plan uh, that it teaches the the, the parents of the or, or the adolescent when uh, when to start their uh, quick relief medicine and if that doesn't relieve them or doesn't last long uh, to contact us about starting a course of oral steroids and in many patients. Uh, that we have confidence in in the parents' uh, ability to understand and follow uh, uh, the plan, we let them we let them uh, start the inhales start an oral steroid on their own. Uh, like if the patient gets a cold, and every time they get a cold, they wind up in the emergency room. That type of patient, we have the parents start the 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 oral steroids as soon as at the first sign of a cold, uh, as an example. We are going to wrap up now, Dr. Hendelis. Thank you so much for joining us. I know I've learned a lot today. To our audience, I want to thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the ATS Rx podcast. I'm Dr. Marilyn Bullock. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll tune in for another episode in the future. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for uh, inviting me to participate.